Hi everyone, welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Lama Tsultrim Alione. Lama Tsultrim is founder and resident Lama of Tara Mandala, located in Colorado. She traveled to India in her late teens and at the age of 22 was the first Western woman to be ordained as a Buddhist nun. After living in the Himalayan region for several years, she returned her vows and became the mother of three while continuing to study and practice Buddhism. She has been awarded the International Outstanding Woman in Buddhism by a panel of distinguished scholars and practitioners in Bangkok, Thailand. She is the author of Women of Wisdom and Feeding Your Demons, and her new book, Wisdom Rising, A Journey into the Mandala of the Empowered Feminine, which was released on May 1st and which we're going to talk a little bit about today. So with that, hello, Lama Tsultrim. Thank you so much hello. for joining me. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So it's been a real pleasure, you know, reading your book. It's a really beautiful book that um, goes back and forth between, you know, narratives about your own life, um, stories about individuals, and and also the the beautiful philosophy and, and iconography and symbolism of the of the mandala and uh, the five dakinis. So I'm really excited to talk about that because we actually haven't talked about. Um, the kind of the philosophy and the ideas around the mandala in any of our podcasts. So, so your new mm -hmm. book, but to, to start off uh, your new book, Wisdom Rising, a journey into the mandala of the empowered feminine, you know, it comes at a kind of ideal time, right? In our culture, when the conversation around equality and social justice and the divine feminine seem to be, you know, very much on people's minds. So I, I was just curious, you know, how you see this book as relating to the greater political project of equality and social justice uh, as it's sort of presenting itself right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a way, <clears throat> I think it goes beyond equality of men and women mm -hmm. into really what is the potency of the feminine as the feminine. Uh, in other words, it's not just a matter of women having the rights that men have or becoming like men. Yeah. But what is the unique gift that the feminine and women have that can impact the situation in the world today? Mm -hmm. That's one That's one thing. The other thing is how can we empower ourselves, I-N, power ourselves in a way that makes it less likely that we will suffer from burnout, mm -hmm. exhaustion, and feelings of being drained by the current situation, and have an inner practice, an inner wholeness that we can draw on as we are active, whether we become actually activists or just being active in our own personal mandalas. How can we uh, get the resources the inner resources for that. So, um, you know, the, in the book, as I was mentioning, there are a lot of your own narratives about your personal life, which are really beautiful and also sometimes quite devastating. There's, you know, uh, wonderful ups and 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 losses that um, that happen throughout your life. And so, you know, obviously, there's a as you're saying, there's a kind of deep psychological tone associated with this work and and with the work of the mandala and the wisdom dakinis. And so, I'm wondering how you see this kind of psychological integration um, related to the greater political project? Because I feel like, you know, oftentimes when people talk about politics, they seem to kind of, they sideline or or or, or don't ne necessarily um, talk about the ways in which that inner work is necessary for, um, for making, for moving towards sustained political progress. So can you talk a little bit about that, the relationship between the psychological work and the political work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always been a proponent of the psycho-spiritual mm -hmm. work, uh, the idea that you really can't make solid progress spiritually without having a parallel emotional development. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a lack that I've seen in uh, the Buddhist community and in myself, frankly, uh, when I came back from being a nun and became a mother and all of a sudden realized I had a lot of emotions yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I thought I had overcome, uh, I realized that I had to work with some of those deeper issues in order to develop spiritually as a whole person. Otherwise, I could get involved with spiritual bypassing, using my path 
to bypass difficult emotions. So I have been teaching this since the 80s about this in this way of doing parallel psychological and spiritual work. So that's that's that that's psycho spiritual. But you're asking about psycho political, mm-hmm. how uh, inner transformational work impacts our political or social activism. Is that right? Yeah. That was a question. So in anything that we do, if we're coming from a place of fragmentation, whether it's emotional or spiritual or even physical, yeah. that fragmentation will impact our effectiveness. If we're coming from a place of wholeness and integration in the psyche of, say, the spirit and our psychological state, then our impact will be greater. It's If you can kind of see it visually, if something is fragmented, it doesn't have strength. Mm-hmm. And, and also it might come out in uh, ways that one doesn't want it to, <laughs> because these situations can become tense and emotions can arise. And if we haven't processed our own inner material, then those emotions can come out in ways that are really destructive to the process that we want to see happen. And for example, uh, with women, with the women's movement, and what's happening now with Me Too, there's a lot of anger, right? Yeah. And that anger is certainly justified. There's, uh, we have reasons to be angry, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but if that anger is loaded with a lot of emotional sort of backlog that we haven't personally processed, then it could become destructive to the process of change. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying people shouldn't feel emotions or try to cut them off, but to do our personal work and then do our social work, or at least do them in a parallel way. We can't get sort of completely cooked and, and developed um, psychologically and then do something because we might never get to it. Yeah. <laughs> so we never reach the end. But I think uh, that idea that we're coming from a, a transformed, integrated state will impact the effectiveness of our communication and therefore our activity. Mm. So, you know, um, touching on that fragmentation is a great way to kind of segue into um, a discussion of the mandala because the mandala, as you kind of talk about in your book, is sort of a symbol, the the circular nature of it is sort of a symbol of that non-fragmentation or a reintegrated kind of wholeness. So um, just to kind of ask some basic questions, uh, what is a mandala for those that are not familiar? A mandala is basically a circle with four quadrants and a center. Uh, The Tibetan word is keel, core. Mm -hmm. Keel means the swirl and core means what surrounds it. Mm. So there's different kinds of definition of the mandala, but essentially it is that pattern of a circle with four quadrants in a center. And of course, in the Tibetan tradition, it gets very highly elaborated with all kinds of different symbolic rings around that center with the four directions. But that's basically the format of it. The inner nature or the effect of the mandala when we use it and the way we use it in buddhism is we enter the mandala we're not looking at a mandala on the wall Mm. like we normally do in a museum or or perhaps on a poster or something like that we're in the center of it and the function is to bring the psyche into that template of wholeness Mm. of the circle the four quadrants in the center and in that way to heal the fragmented psyche and not only heal it, which was more a Jungian idea of how to work with the mandala, not only heal it in the Buddhist sense to enter into the luminous presence of the deities within the mandala 
and thereby transform our obscured emotions into the five wisdoms. Mm. So when you say um, that for Jung it was a healing, are you saying that, it, it, I'm sort of hearing that you're saying it was sort of selling it short, like it wasn't kind of the full process? Is that kind of what you mean by remarking on Jung's idea that the mandala was, was sort of just for, not just for healing, what was primarily for healing rather than what seems to be a kind of more almost spiritual goal? Mm. Yes, uh, I think you could say that, uh, although I don't know if I'd say it quite like that. I, th I think that he, what we could say was he related to the mandala as a psychological healing tool mm. and also as a manifestation of the unfragmented psyche that would come to his clients in dreams in various ways uh, or, or through drawing mandalas. So he had a, uh, he used that template for himself starting in between uh, 1918 and 1920 when he was a commandant in a prisoner of war camp in Switzerland. He started drawing mandalas and he literally said he felt that he was able to maintain his sanity under those conditions because he was drawing mandalas daily and then allowing the mandalas to speak to him. Mm. So in that sense, psychological, with the Tibetan mandala, it takes it further, I would say, and in, often in a less personal way. A, a Jung's mandalas, they, they are archetypal, but they also have personal symbolism in them. Whereas in a Tibetan mandala practice, that symbolism is, I guess you could say, dictated by or informed by the visualization of the mandala that you're working with. And so you're actually placing yourself in a symbolic structure and you know the meaning of all the symbols in that structure. So you, to, to really do a mandala practice, you have to understand the symbolic meaning of, say, all the ornaments of the dakinis in this case, or um, the accoutrements, they're, what they're holding in their hands, their position, and so on. So once you learn that symbolic meaning, then when you're doing the mandala practice itself, the symbolic impact will come to you naturally. Mm. But it's not a creative process in the sense of, you know, anything kind of, anything is the mandala that's a circle with four quadrants. Right. It, it's very specific and has a uh, stated meaning of those four directions and the deities and so on in the four directions in the center. I see. So then in the book, you mentioned that there are actually three mandalas, the outer, the inner, and the secret. Can you unpack those, the, the differences between those three? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the outer mandala is our world. Mm. So you know how we normally think of our lives in a kind of linear way? Yeah. Like I was born, then I was a child, now I'm this age, I'm going to get old, and I'm going to die. And even during the day, we have this linear idea of what happened, that we're always kind of walking a line in some way. Uh, even if it's a, a sort of convoluted line where we think of it in a linear way. Whereas when you're in the experience of the outer mandala, you are in the center of your world always. You're not moving out of that. And the people and animals, your home, everything is your outer mandala. Mm. And so you could you could see your, your family and, and close um, people as the retinue of your mandala mm -hmm. and then so on and it goes out to include the whole word world and i find this a very potent experience to st think about my life as my mandala my outer mandala and people move in it and move out of it maybe i change locations but the mandala is always there so it, it creates naturally a sense of centeredness in my life. Mm. And so that's the outer mandala. And then the inner mandala is the Sambhogakaya level of the mandala. Sambhogakaya meaning the dimension of luminosity. 
uh, it's it's uh, the radiance uh, or the expression of the dharmakaya, which is pure potential that has no form. So the deities in the mandala, uh, in the inner mandala, have the quality of light. They are embodiments. They have form like a body, but it, they're made of light. And so when you visualize yourself as the mandala of the Dakinis, for example, what you're doing is quite literally illuminating your body and illuminating your mind, not only with the colors of the mandala and the deities and so on, but also through sound, through the seed syllables, and then if it's a more complex sadhana, the mantra. Mm-hmm. And so that process of illumination transforms our obstructed patterns into the five wisdoms. So that's the function of the inner mandala. The secret mandala is when our lives themselves reveal or are experienced as the luminous mandala. Mm. And so it's not constructed it's not even visualized. It, it's the quality of isness. Mm. I think you could say. So it's kind of the spontaneous like emergence of the or of like the kind of the accumulated work of working in this way with the mandala. Like the secret mandala is when all of that bears fruit. In a way. Yeah, I think I think you could say that to a certain extent. There's a, a line in Trumper and Bache's Sadhana of all the cities that goes, this is the mandala which is never arranged but always remains complete. Mm. I loved that line. I, it really struck me. I, I met that Sadhana in 1969 and I did it um, every day for a long time. And so I really got to know the, the words. And that description of the mandala uh, has that idea of the self-manifesting mandala. Mm. Mm. So now, how? Uh, well, first of all, I guess what are the dakinis? And and I mean, we're sort of already discovering how they relate to the mandala, I think. But um, maybe we can just talk more pointedly <clears throat> about that. So yeah, what are what are the dakinis, and how do they relate to what we're talking about with the mandala? Dakinis are the manifestation of the fierce feminine. Um, although they're not always fierce, they usually are portrayed as fierce, as surrounded by flames. Mm-hmm. And the dakinis have a lot of different functions. They can function as a guide. The, the dakinis can be a yidam or a deity you use in meditation. There are worldly dakinis and wisdom dakinis, but I essentially am talking about the wisdom dakinis in my book. And so the dakinis have a quality of intensity, fierceness, and energy. And they, the presence of the dakinis is an activating force, mm-hmm. but it's in a way it's activating the experience of emptiness. So the kadro, you know, kadro in Tibetan is akini, kadro ma, uh, is the idea of the, which means to go in space or sky goers. Sometimes people translate it a little more poetically, but it literally means space goer. Mm. Uh, And so the dakinis are, in that sense, are communicators, they're, they're guides, they're messengers in that sense, but they're also messengers of emptiness. They, they go through emptiness. They are permeated, permeated by it and expressions of it, but they're active. And in our lives, they tend to pull the rug out from under us. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I say in the book is they preside over the funeral of self-deception. <laughs> that's a beautiful way to put it yeah and one of the interesting things about the dakinis is they're, it's very hard to explain them mm-hmm. uh, whenever anyone says oh, what's a dakini there's a, there's a level where I kind of go blank 
And and I, I worried about that for a while, but then I realized, well, that's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> that they uh, they are beyond concepts, they're beyond words, and they're operating in that liminal space. And so to wrap them up in a definition or uh, put words around them, in some way you lose them in that yeah. process. Yeah. Do we lose something as well even by trying to force them into a traditional notion of what a deity is? Well, I, do, I think it depends on the function. Uh, in the function of the inner mandala where you're doing a visualization, I think it's really important, that precision. Mm-hmm. And to really um, know the meaning, as I said, the symbolic meaning, to be able to see it clearly. Uh, those Those are important uh, processes. In terms of the function of the Dakini principle in our lives, perhaps then you could say that, uh, that it, you know, to try to control them and fix, fixate them somewhere and define them would be in a way missing the point. Yeah. So let's go through them, maybe one by one, actually. Um, so there's, and uh, we haven't actually talked about the five families, but they're mm-hmm. in the book, you know, you discuss five families and wisdom dakinis. So, um, w- I mean, what's the difference between the family and the dakini that's associated with that, with that family? Is that essentially the same thing? Yes. Okay. You know, we, ca- we call it the five Buddha families, but you could call it the five dakini families. Okay. Those, those concepts of the five families apply to male deities, female deities, the yabyum or union deities. The five families are um, in all of those aspects. Okay. So the first family um, you discuss is the Buddha Dakini. And mm-hmm. and um, and it's associated all-encompassing wisdom. So, you know, there's a kind of – you discuss it um, – as an exit and the wi- the wisdom and the exit is that a, a good way to put it of of each talking so essentially there's sort of a dark side and a light side um, of each one so can we talk about the the kind of exit and the wisdom of the Buddha Dakini? Yeah, so uh, there's three things I guess you could say. Okay. There's the what I call the encumbered pattern mm-hmm. or the poison. Yeah. There's the wisdom, and then the exit is something different. Okay. So. Let's just take the Buddha Dakini. So the encumbered pattern in the Buddha family is denial, being uh, confused, bewildered. It can be depression and in extreme dissociation. Procrastination also is connected to Buddha. So just sort of having the wool over your eyes uh, and, and being confused. That's the obstructed pattern. The simple term for it in Tibetan is ma rigpa, which means non-awareness, yeah. or it's often translated as ignorance. But right. I don't like the ignorance translation because it could mean something like, you know, ignorant, like hasn't gone to school type thing. Right. Uh, but it's really ignorance of our true nature right. and space, spaciness. So that's the encumbered pattern. And then the wisdom pattern of Buddha family is all-encompassing wisdom. So space-iness becomes space-usness, mm-hmm. a vast experience of space. The exit in all of the families means how you get out of a situation. Mm. So if I were to take a Buddha exit, I would space out. I would not remember what you said. Mm-hmm. I would go in the room and close the door and just lie on my bed and space out. So we all have ways that we get out of uncomfortable situations. And each of the families has a possible exit, which is how we get out of it. So we could be primarily, primarily, let's say, a Buddha family person, but our exit is Vajra, which would we'd get angry. So those are the three things, the encumbered pattern, the wisdom, and then the exit. Okay. And of course, there's directions and colors and sounds and 
seasons and senses and so on all associated with the family yeah and it's beautiful the uh, to to look at all of that and and so we definitely point everybody listening to the book <laughs> wisdom rising to to learn about all of the rest of it but we can stick with those three principles because i think those are very interesting so now we know about buddha then the next one is vajra dakini mm-hmm. so do you want to talk about that yeah, so Vajra is, as I said, anger, it's the encumbered pattern, both hot and cold anger, which I, I think is interesting because the element is water. And water is the only element that can both be freezing as ice and and hot as steam. And uh, it's harmful in both when it freezes and when it's hot. So that's the encumbered pattern. And then the wisdom is mirror-like wisdom, which is the understanding and the experience of how the mind is like a mirror. It can be very clear. And I think we we all know when we're angry how clear we can be (laughs) about the faults of the other person. Yeah. Uh, So the wisdoms are interesting because they're, they're the same energy as the encumbered pattern, but with the struggle of the ego fixation removed. So the clarity of anger in its cold and hot forms, when that struggle and impact of the ego is removed, turns into a vast clarity, the ability to be a clear reflection in front of which anything can pass without us being judgmental or reactive. Mm. So that's the wisdom. It's mirror-like wisdom. And then the exit would be anger in that case. And and the direction is east and the color is blue. Hmm. So um, I have a question about that, but I'll, I think I'll come back to it after we get through all five. So um, the Ratna Dakini, Dakini is next. Mm-hmm. What about that one? The Ratna Dakini, the Ratna means jewel. It's the... Direction is south, the color is yellow, the element is earth, and the encumbered pattern is pride, pride or arrogance. But pride is actually covering or compensating for feelings of not being good enough. Uh, we don't have enough, we, we feel in some way impoverished, and therefore we need to inflate ourselves, not only to sort of in the sense of personal pride, but also in terms of consuming. Ratna family is the family of consumption, whether it's overeating, overdrinking, overshopping, uh, hoarding, that's Ratna. And and the way that manifests is as a kind of pride. Hmm. And so the Uh, wisdom in this case is the wisdom of equanimity, evenness. And so when we remove the struggle from that pride, there's a trust in the earth. There's an even equal value quality uh, that everything has because we're not trying to grasp it. And then the exit with uh, the Ratna family would be to go shopping, <laughs> to, to, to drink, to eat, to in some way consume, mm-hmm. uh, and in that way deal with yeah. our emotions. Yeah. And then Padma Dakini. Padma's in the West. The color is red. The element is fire. And the encumbered pattern is craving or desire. And one of the qualities of of the uh, Padma family is the inability to really enter into deep relationship and the compulsive need to seduce. Mm. So it's kind of the Don Juan complex or the Don Juanita <laughs> complex of, of uh, just being caught in seduction and magnetizing. Yeah. But once that's over, you're not interested anymore. Mm-hmm. You're, it's, it's really being caught in in this uh, push-pull of mag- magnetizing everyone, whether it, you have to create a relationship with the waiter, with the check-in person at the airport, you know, this feeling of uh, relation, relationality, but with a kind of compulsive, 
quality. So sex addiction would also be found here, addiction to pornography, that kind of thing, that compulsive um, grasping. And then uh, the wisdom is interesting with Padma. And at first I was like, I don't get that. Why does that work with desire? It's the, the wisdom is discernment. Hmm. Yeah, and, I was a little confused about that too, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How does that really connect? So the way I have understood it as I've contemplated it over the years is that when you are being seductive, when you're seducing someone, you're very discerning about every little thing about them and what they might like and how they want you to be, etc. So there's this, in order to seduce, you have to be discerning. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so when that struggle of the ego, that fixation in this particular pattern, Padma is released, that energy that's already there, and that's how these wisdoms are, they're the energy under the poison or the afflicted pattern. So the energy there is, is discriminating awareness or discernment. And so that's, that's the connection. Mm, mm. And also Padma uh, it, it connects to the arts, and it's the ability to see relationships between colors and shapes and sounds and so on, depending what kind of artist you are, and then work with those in a discerning way. Mm-hmm. And so that's a transformed. And then the, the exit would be seduction, yeah. that when you're trying to get out of a situation, call somebody, draw them into the situation, or uh, find a sexual partner or uh, whatever, you know, use that. Um, that energy to get out of the emotions that you're feeling. Yeah, yeah. So we've reached our we've reached our fifth uh, dakini, the karma dakini. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the karma dakini. The color is green. The element is fire, and the obstructed pattern is jealousy or envy. And I think a better word is maybe competitiveness, mm-hmm. because karma has a lot to do with keep up with the Joneses kind of feeling or uh, the way friends can compete with each other, the way siblings compete in business. Of course, there's a lot of that uh, struggle coming from comparing yourself with somebody else and what they have. And so that creates compulsive activity, workaholic tendencies, mm-hmm. the, the, that sort of windedness you can get when you're super busy. Yeah where you actually get in bed at night and you almost feel like you're panting yeah. and it's hard to go to sleep mm-hmm. because your, your lung, your prana is, is way up. I know that. So one. that's the obstructed pattern. <laughs> do, do you relate to that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> well, I think everybody does in this day and age, you know, we're, we're all going way faster than we really want to go. Yeah. So, yeah. And then the wisdom is all accomplishing wisdom, which, mm. uh, is also a beautiful wisdom and, and something that took me a while to understand. I, I thought at first, oh, it just means you can get everything done in a wise way. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really about being in the flow mm-hmm. rather than the force. And when you're in that flow of all-accomplishing wisdom, synchronicity happens and things fall into place without you having to manipulate them a lot or force the situation. So it's definitely, it's the family of skillful means um, of, uh, in terms of acts and actions, activities, but also karma is associating with destroying or subjugating. So destroy what needs to be destroyed. Not only, it's not only sort of uh, creating or or getting things done, but also knowing when it's time to cut the cord or mm. end something. Mm. Mm. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you for um, describing each one of those. So, you know, one of the things that I really love about the Dakini is, you know, and this is sort of touching on something that you remarked upon at the beginning of our chat is, is this kind of way in which some of the spiritual traditions seem to imply um, a need to repress or 
deflect emotions or at least sometimes you know we have this sort of mm -hmm. notion of spiritual bypassing which which um touches upon that really nicely and what i love about the dakinis is that it's a transmutation right it's it's a, a working mm -hmm. with the emotions and and it's not that the emotions are bad it's that the con kind of contracted um ego uh ego anchored relationship to that emotion is, is sort of is sort of the issue and um and when you were talking about the anger, um, uh, the Vajra Dakini, uh, it made me think back on what you were talking about with regards to Me Too, where you were starting to um, speak about the anger and how the, if that is left as a kind of, um, I don't know, you know, I guess ego-driven, um, unresolved kind of anger that it could spiral out of control. So I was curious what you thought about, you know, let's take that Vajra Dakini to that particular social issue what would mm. what would um the transmutation of that kind of anger look like for the for the kind of um um i don't know resolution of me too or the or the future of me too i guess we could say mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah well if we think about anger and its transformation in mirror-like wisdom then if we can transform that emotion into its wisdom aspect, we have a great deal of clarity. So we might manifest a fierceness, but behind that would be clarity, and behind it would not be hatred. Mm. So it's like a mother, you know, like if, if one of my kids when they were little would like run out, start to cross the street, I would grab them and stop them and be very fierce and, and firm with them. But I wouldn't have any hatred toward them. When I did that, it would it, more like a, a clarity and a fierceness that is needed in that situation. So that would be the main difference, is there wouldn't be that, that sort of grasping um, hook. I think hook is a good word of of the hatred and, and the, all the concepts of contempt and so on that can be behind that. And so that then would afford us, well, that clarity would afford us to be able to manifest that fierceness, which I think can be really necessary, particularly uh, in things like sexual abuse or harassment or assault, that we, we need to have that fierceness. It can't always appear sort of sweet and calm and so on. There needs to be some energy there. And if we think about anger, when are we more active than when we're angry? There's, there's uh, all the systems are on full steam ahead and it's, it's fast moving. So if we unhook the ego from that, we have a very powerful fast moving energy that can be very effective for change. But the other thing about that hatred and anger is that if we're feeling that hatred, we're running that through our bodies the whole time, and that can be very debilitating yeah. in itself and draining. So if we can manifest fierceness without having that sort of backwash of anger, we will become less burned out and and feel better generally because it's 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 too bad when people are activists um, or in you know and I I know that activism doesn't necessarily mean that you're out on the street with a sign mm -hmm. there's lots of forms of activism but it's too bad that many activists feel burnt out and get burnt out and I think part of that's through running these negative emotions through through their bodies all the time yeah yeah uh, you know, one of the things you had me you mentioned in the book, I think you were maybe quoting someone else, but you uh, talked about how the tantric tradition was ideal for those with uh, deep passions. Mm -hmm. And I, I really liked that. Um, and of course, I think most people who are listening are familiar enough. We've talked about tantra enough times to know the difference between neo-tantra and the kind of tantra of tantric Buddhism and, and mm -hmm. Hindu tantra. Um, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. And I, I'm kind of curious, I guess, 
you know, if tantric Buddhism is for the people with high passions, um, well, first of all, who are those that don't have high passions? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and, and then who, what kind of traditions are appropriate? Like, because, you know, we've got Zen, we've got, I guess, Mahayana, um, other traditions of Buddhism that are not as, um, as rooted in, in these kinds of practices. So I guess I, I just, I'm just curious, I guess, a little bit about that distinction between, mm. um, you know, tantric, the tantric uh, Buddhist tradition and maybe some of the others. Yeah, well, this, this is what's said that, um, for example, if you have a lot of desire, for example, and you transmute that or transform it into the wisdom of discernment, then the equal amount of energy that you've had in that desire burns with discriminating awareness wisdom. So the intensity of the emotion itself it's just energy. And when the overlay of fixation and grasping is removed, the greater that energy is, the more the wisdom will shine forth, mm -hmm. the more intense the wisdom will be. So I think that I, I, I don't really want to compare this to other paths because yeah. I think that that could be a mistake. Um, I, I, prefer just to talk about my understanding of Vajrayana mm -hmm. and how that works. And I think people can feel, and it's also somewhat karmic, what kind of Buddhism they're attracted to right. and, and want to practice. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, with regards to you know, okay, so someone's reading your book or they're listening to us have this conversation and they're hearing um, descriptions of the, the, the Dakinis and the families, but they're not quite sure, you know, which family they fit into. I know for me, I, I was sort of reading through it and I was like, I'm all of these. <laughs> Where do I start? And, yeah. um, and so, you know, how do you begin to, to figure out, you know, which one or two Dakinis you fall under? Well, in a way, we are all of them, and I'm not sure it's terribly important to figure out right. what you are. Uh, when you receive a traditional Vajrayana empowerment, uh, you get a flower, and they come around with a mandala on a tray, and you put the flower over the mandala and between uh, your middle fingers holding it and then you drop it onto the mandala and it will fall into one of the families. Oh. And so that's the, uh, the focus for you um, with that particular practice. And so that it's sort of determined in that way. Yeah. I, I find all the, the families helpful in terms of myself. I, I definitely find all of those. Uh, and then the ones that I find are more predominant in me then I find those more helpful, perhaps, uh, in, in thinking about how to transform my patterns, because I can see, oh, uh, this is, I have got a lot of this tendency. Yeah. And uh, so what would be the antidote to that? And, um, but when you do the mandala practice, you become all of them, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Of course, you are mainly the, the central dakini, with the retinue, but really you're spreading your mind out yeah. to to be all five, mm. to embody all five. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. So, um, but I guess to maybe ask it in a different way for those that aren't going to be in that or, or don't have access to that kind of empowerment ceremony, mm -hmm. do you have any sort of recommendations on what to start with? Um, do you just go what intuitively speaks to you the most kind of, you know, intensely, or do you have any other suggestions around that? Well, it depends what you mean by start with. What do you mean start with well, in what sense? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, in your book, there's sort of five chapters and you, you mention, um, you know, sit, sit with one for like a week. Um, would you just go through it kind of um, consecutively as you do in the book or, or would you or mm -hmm. start with one that sort of speaks to you more? I would suggest doing it sequential, oh, sequentially. Sequentially okay. with Buddha, Vajra, Ratna, Padma, Karma. Okay. 
because okay. they kind of build on each other also. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That may, that's good to have a, a set sequence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Less choices. Yeah, exactly. I know. I think choice is kind of oppressive. Um, so can you give us an example of how, you know, by using an exercise from the book, someone can create change in their life? Or is, you know, even maybe something that you've seen, uh, given that you've been working with the Dakinis for, you know, uh, decades now? Mm-hmm. Well, I can um, talk about some specific instances of, uh, for example, a woman who came to a retreat I, I gave on the East Coast three years ago of the Mandala of the Five Dakinis. And I taught the practice that's in the book. And she went home and did it. And then she came back the next year where I was teaching the same thing. Yeah. This is at Kripal, the yoga center mm -hmm. in Western Mass. And uh, she, I didn't know her. And I didn't know that she'd been doing the practice and so on. There's a big group, 150 women at that retreat. So I didn't get to know people. But anyway, she... Um, said at the second meeting, she raised her hand and she said, I, I have to say something. And so I said, okay, go ahead. And she said, I have been doing this practice for a year. When I started, I was about to get divorced. I was really depressed. And I've been complaining about politics my whole life. And not doing anything about it but complaining a lot and getting depressed by it. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, and through what happened by doing the practice of the five Dakinis on a regular basis is my life completely changed. I developed a sense of inner power. My marriage shifted. My relationship to my children shifted. And I'm running for Congress. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So um, she did, she lost, but she got 37% of the vote and wow. she had no money. Amazing. And, and she said this year she came back again and she said, I'm going to run again. And I'm more experienced now and I think I could win this time. So this is just, you know, a housewife, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so that's an example of a, a personal story with the practice. Yeah. There was another woman uh, in that retreat, and she said she had suffered from abuse as a child and uh, sexual abuse, and that she had spent her whole life being uh, in this trauma and hating being a woman. Mm. And never had liked it, didn't want to dress like a woman. It felt like, it, you know, it made her a victim and so on. And she said, after doing this practice where you visualize yourself as an empowered feminine being, she said, it's the first time in my life I've been able to feel comfortable and empowered in my body. So that was, that was that's another case because of the identification with the, the feminine there was another person who who said she was an she was an activist like like that's what she does and she because of the current political climate and what's happened with so many environmental and other progressive laws that are being are gradually taken apart that she was feeling really hopeless and had no energy and with the empowerment experience of the practice she didn't feel that way anymore. Of course, the situation isn't good, but she didn't feel burnt out. She felt like she had a lot of energy and she could draw on that. Mm. So that those are some examples. In terms of how the listeners might work with a family, uh, the, the practice of the five Dakini Mandala is in the book and it's pretty carefully and extensively explained how to do it. So that's what I would suggest doing is actually do that mandala practice so you experience the wholeness 
the wholeness template of the mandala. But if you wanted to also just work with one family and say the issues of a family, like let's say you have depression, for example, that's, that's Buddha family. And so you could work with the seed syllable of that dakini, which is BAM, B-A-M, and the color white, and simply that, not the whole visualization of the dakini, but sounding that BAM in a deep, low, strong voice, and the sounding of it so the sound is going into your body rather than projected out, and then see the white light permeate your whole body mm. that can ha that's very quick there's no preliminaries you can just sound the seed syllable drop into the the light that luminosity that color and allow the emotion to transform mm. Mm. so uh we're kind of nearing the end of our time but i want to i have a couple more questions that i'd like to ask that are shifting um a little bit away from from what we've been talking about um, but I wanted to talk about, you know, the, obviously, based on the work that you do, the tools are there within the, the Buddhist tradition to do this kind of work of, um, you know, um, healing that inter these internal rifts. Um, but, you know, we're in a, a situation right now, right, where we're seeing a lot of um, in the Buddhist community and also other spiritual communities of this, you know, it, this... Um, uh, um, coming to the surface of various forms of inequality that have been um, problematic towards women. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what you see as being the source of that and if it's a kind of wider cultural problem that's infecting these communities or if it's, um, if it's the effects of an institutionalized form of, of these teachings or, or just, I don't know, any of your th kind of thoughts related to um, what we're seeing with regards to certain communities kind of falling apart, apart as a result of sexual abuse and inequality between the sexes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We, Buddhism's having its own Me Too movement, movement yeah. right now. Um, and so this is, I, I was reading yesterday in the New York Times an article about Catholic Church and a priest who um, groomed young acolytes as his <laughs> victims, I guess you could yeah. say, um, for, for decades. And the same thing has happened in the Buddhist communities. And so it's, it's the patriarchal structures that are in place that have a setup of one person having almost like a feudal lord mm. um, power over their inferiors, so to speak. Yeah. And in under patriarchy, women are always inferiors. And, but they're not the only ones. <laughs> it's in the, it's in the whole structure. As we see in the, in the Catholic church, it's often men who are abused or boys. So that, that structure of power over rather than power with lends itself to that kind of abuse. So those in power have, their, have desires. They, they have personal needs, and they use those who are subjected to their power to fulfill their own needs. Mm. And so this is very dangerous. Um, it's a it's a dangerous structure, and so I think until that structure, and of course in Vajrayana Buddhism, because the guru is considered to be so essential in seeing uh, the Lama as the Buddha and so on, it's it's uh, in some ways more vulnerable to the misuse of power than other kinds of Buddhism. But I have to say that. Vajrayana does not have a corner in the market here. <laughs> that uh, Zen has had incredible problems mm -hmm. uh, with this, perhaps more than in, in the Vajrayana. And again, you have a very hierarchical, uh, emotion-repressing 
society that's governed by men in power, with power over others. And often um, being in situations with women that they wouldn't traditionally find themselves in so often. Yeah. And so that's also true in the West with Lamas finding themselves in, in relationship with women in ways that they wouldn't in traditional culture. And uh, so that's stimulating, that's exciting. And, um, and because of their power, they can act on that. Yeah. And they do. So until I think it also has a lot to do with this psychophysical, psychospiritual work, um, that if, if these teachers were actually doing their psychological work and noticing what's coming up for them and have, having methods to transform it, they would be less likely, likely to act it out than when they don't have uh, that or have anyone that they're working with personally in that way. Mm-hmm. Do you think more dangerous? We, yeah. Do you think that we have to rethink the kind of structure of the, you know, what in the Hindu tradition would be the guru shishya relationship, and then in this the Buddhist tradition the lama um, student relationship? Um, is that structure lending itself to this kind of hierarchy and abuse? Um, and, and and I mean, what would your, what do you suggest, you know, moving forward? Like how do Mm. we, how do we address what seems to be kind of internal to the very way in which these, or these communities are organized? Yeah, that's a really uh, good question. I think if you ask that of a traditional Lama, they would say, if you don't have this relationship to the Lama, there is no Tibetan Buddhism. Exactly. That's what they say in the Hindu tradition as well. Yeah. It's at the core. Yeah. Um, And that's how transmission takes place and devotion is very important and so on. So that would, that would be the answer. You know, I know that would be the answer. I've heard it (laughs) many times. And, so I think what I would say is that your question was, do we need to relook at this in the West? And I, I would say yes. I think that um, because of the shifts that we're needing to see in um, gender relations and also in the potential abuses of that position, uh, which uh, is so wide open for that, considering the power that the Lama has and also the intimacy of that relationship over the years. Um, what, what I personally do with my students is I really encourage a, a nurturing relationship I see myself really as somebody who's supporting their process Mm -hmm. uh, with the skills that I know and also through my personal experience, what I can share. And that link between student and disciple that is really a psychic link and a a potential um, blessing Mm -hmm. stream, uh, I don't think is destroyed or harmed by not being treated like a god or uh, not you know being um having a human relationship mm-hmm. um i think that it's healthier and i i do think uh this will change in the west and Exactly what form that takes, I think, will depend on the lineage and, and the people involved. But for me personally, I, I notice that I'm different uh, than, say, my teachers were with me, that I tend to focus on nourishing and nurturing my students rather than cutting through, cutting the ego, right. um, criticizing them. I don't feel like that's what they need. I feel they need more encouragement and for me to share what I know, but um, but not from the view that I'm divine, you know, yeah. um, but more like a, a, a mentor. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow, that's a great answer. Um, my last question was about, you know, who the book is for. Um, and, you know, I, I'm wondering if you see this book primarily for women or if you really wanted it to be um, directed towards both men and women. Well, you can see from how it's written, I'm aiming at um, my audience in my mind is women. Yeah. Uh, because of uh, what's happening right now. Yeah. But it's not only because of that, it's because this has been a, a concern for me since the 80s, since Women of Wisdom came out, is how can we get the feminine back in a form that can be uh, in its full potency, to bring that potency of the feminine to the table where the decisions are being made that affect us all. So that said, though, men are finding the book very helpful, and I think you said you did. Yeah, definitely. And uh, and the Dakini practice itself is certainly not exclusively done by women. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's probably more men doing Dakini mandala practice in the in the Tibetan tradition than women. Right. I, I don't know if there's any way to determine that, but it would it would be at least equal, if not more. And so I think my answer would be both. Um, my focus is toward women in the book, and a lot of my examples are women or female examples from myself. Um, but uh, men have the feminine too, mm -hmm. and, and, and they also want to transform their feminine and have that aspect come into their, uh, the full potency within them, and also to support the women in their lives and, and, and support the, the women's movement. Um, and one of the, I asked a, a friend of mine who works in gender reconciliation, um, this question that I'm of, often asked, you didn't exactly ask it, but similar. Uh, what uh, is the role for a man in this yeah. um, gender reconciliation process? Mm -hmm. And he said, the the honor and the power of a male is to use his position to actively dismantle patriarchy. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I was, I thought, wow, that's that's great, <laughs> that's great, because I think until men get that it's a problem for all of us, it's not just a woman's problem. Yeah. Um, and become activists. It's the same thing with racism. Tell white people get it's a problem for them and that it's not just about the other. Yeah. It's not really going to change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I sort of felt like the the tools that you share in the book would be really, you know, helpful for someone experiencing the effects of kind of toxic masculinity in, in their life. And, and certainly toxic masculinity doesn't help any man because it, you know, <laughs> distorts and strangles um, healthy relationships. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, for me at least, and experiencing the book, I did not feel like it was primarily for women. I definitely felt, I mean, I certainly felt like what you're saying, that the, the tone is, is, is in the direction towards women, but it certainly it could be fruitful for, for both men and women. Yeah. A lot of men are, are telling me that and also doing the Daikini Mandala practice. And as and one of the kind of interesting things about Tibetan Buddhism is gender fluidity, um, in that we visualize ourselves as male deities, women do, mm -hmm. and men as female, and then there's peaceful, there's the, the blissful, and then the wrathful deities. So male and females, and, and then yabyum, which is you, you're both simultaneously. So I find that very interesting that you're, you're literally shifting your identity, your gender identity in different practices and, and getting less attached to I am this and you're that and mm. never the twins shall meet, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting aspect of Vajrayana practice, this gender fluidity. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation, uh, Lama Tsultram. Um, I was wondering, as we close, if you wanted to share anything that you're up to coming up, if there's any kind of workshops or retreats that you're hosting that you want to share with our audience. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I think the first thing I would say is the uh, we're very active on my public figure page on mm-hmm. Facebook, Lama Sultramaliani. And so there's a lot of live streaming that's going on now as I'm traveling around teaching. Awesome. Uh, that people can tune into, and then those live streams become uh, recordings afterwards. And there's a YouTube channel, Sultramelioni YouTube channel also. Um, so that's a way people can tune in remotely. And then uh, the website, wisdomrisingbook.com, wisdomrisingbook.com, has a schedule of my travels. I'll be both here and in Europe before the end of the year, uh, traveling in the United States. Right now I'm in, in California, then I'll be at Shambhala Mountain Center at the end of July, and then in Europe in September. Um, there's also a Wisdom Rising retreat with Lopan Chandra at Tara Mandala, the 19th to 23rd of September, uh, going more deeply into the mandala practice with um, Lopan Chandra, who's an authorized teacher. And then my whole schedule and lots about Tara Mandala can, can be found at taramandala.org.org. And I imagine you'll post those, those links for people. Yes. Um, so, yeah, there's uh, the other thing is we're, we're about to release an online program of Wisdom Rising that's very in-depth and it's a video of me teaching various different things, and then there will be ways for people to connect in personally and so on. So those are some oh, options. So when does that uh, online um, course launch? In the beginning of August. Okay. Okay, great. So, yeah, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes, and, and, mm. and hopefully we'll get some sign-ups from that. Well, thank you so much, Lama. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom. Well, thank you. And thank you for being prepared and uh, asking good questions. And I, I hope that it's helpful to your listeners.